Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Uh, welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben Ryman. Uh, today, today's a special one on the show. Uh, I've got uh, uh, two folks whose work I've, I've I've admired for quite a long time, and I've had the privilege of uh, uh, of enjoying presentations from and having conversations with uh, uh, at least uh, at least one of them uh, for a little bit. Uh, and uh, so I'm I'm both excited and nervous to have uh, both uh, Dr. Uh, Nasia Serencioni Ulezi on and Dr. Uh, Jonathan Darbuck. So welcome to the show, folks. Hi. Thank you Hi, for thank you. thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for having us. Appreciate it. So I've I've been trying to include uh, a, a land acknowledgement on every episode, uh, sort of for the last sort of several ten or ten or eleven that I've done. Um, and today's uh, and land acknowledgements for folks that you know haven't heard uh, the last couple episodes lately uh are, are are related to sort of acknowledging the uh indigenous and ancestral lands uh that we live work and play on uh but it's also for uh you know i think for highlighting items in history as well as sort of uplifting voices and so i want to kind of do both of those things today in, in my acknowledgement uh today's uh we're recording today's episode on the fourth day of of what's called Indigenous Disability Awareness Month um, in Canada, and I believe there's 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 a similar one in in, in the states. Um, so I want to first start off by just kind of highlighting the work of uh, of a couple of folks that I've uh, had the privilege of both uh, doing podcast work with and then working with a lot locally. Um, the first is a fellow named Grant Bruno, um, and folks will know him from uh, episode thirty seven. Um, uh, where we talked about uh, his experiences. Um, 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 raising a, 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 a child with autism in, uh, in Indigenous communities. And it's really fascinating. Grant's the chair of what's called uh, the Indigenous Relations Circle um, in Alberta, Canada. Um, and I'm just reading kind of from the, the bio of that circle. Uh, Rooted in respect, the circle's goals are to bring together diverse perspectives and on the experiences of Indigenous peoples and autism in Alberta. The circle is a central concept to Indigenous peoples across Turtle Island, and the Indigenous Relations Circle will listen, learn, share, connect, and advocate for Indigenous autistic people and families. Uh, the circle is also uh, guiding Grant's Grant, all of Grant's uh, PhD research, so he's using a community participatory approach, and he's using that Indigenous Circle to to actually guide the research question, the recruitment, the design, and everything in between. Um, and he's working on kind of uh, redefining, exploring the re redefining of autism from a Cree lens, uh, gathering stories uh, with families and individuals who have experiences with neurodiversity using a strength-based approach, as well, as well as gathering data on the perspectives of autism in Maskowitz, which is the uh, First Nation uh, community that he lives in. Um, and uh, and his his work the episode I, I i it's 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 selfless promotion but if if there's any episode that i've ever done that's the one i'll i'll tell people to listen to because it's just such an eye opener on sort of um, uh, indigenous perspectives on autism and it's really really kind of changed the game for me uh, and the work he's doing in fact he was he was just recently involved in a paper that came out uh, to develop a national autism strategy in Canada. So I love that it's got a indigenous uh, sort of uh, uh, perspective as, as sort of the 
a key point. He's, he's a key writer on this strategy. So I really love that piece. The other person I just wanted to bring up is Jed Ashley. Jed Ashley is a, a, a colleague of mine here in, in British Columbia. Uh, I've known her for many years. Uh, and uh, she's a Métis Cree, uh, English uh, Indigenous Behavior Consultant and uh, decolonial facilitator at a company she owns called Raven Wing Consulting. Really cool. She's uh, uh, Folks who are listening right now probably won't hear this probably won't know about this uh, because it'll be released later, but at the end of this month, she's doing a, a, a really neat uh, reflection uh, practice uh, as for, as part of BC ABBA's uh, kind of fall event. So, uh, you know, folks should kind of look into that. Maybe I'll get this out before then to promote that. Um, she's really passionate about incorporating the Indigenous way of knowing into her practice with children who are First Nations, Métis, or Inuit, and being an advocate for decolonizing therapeutic practices and systems. It's really, she's got an Instagram page. Um, it, it, I highly recommend following that. Uh, every now and then, she'll come on and 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 sing a song with her drum and 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 do some really cool reflections on her ancestors. I really, it's really cool. Just follow kind of her journey, learning about uh, sort of the indigenous side of her life that she hadn't spent a lot of time on. The other piece I want to talk on. Usually, the acknowledgments are, are relatively short, but I also just wanted to touch on folks who may see if I kind of stand up a bit with the camera, you'll see I've got my poppy on as, uh, as it's yeah. uh, remembrance days on November 11th. And we always wear our poppies to sort of, you know, uh, acknowledge uh, the veterans and, and people who have given service, uh, you know, uh, to our country. Uh, but November 8th is actually Indigenous Veterans Day. Um, and uh, it's estimated that as many as 12,000 First Nations folk served in all the great wars of the 20th century with some, something like 500 dead. And records go back to all the way to the War of 1812 to now where there's, I think, 2,700 Indigenous personnel in, in our current armed forces. But I think it's also important to note our colonial legacy of racism and racism has meant Indigenous service members have had to fight to get recognition uh, and, and, and the commemoration they deserve. Things they're not allowed to do. Indigenous veterans were not allowed to host the honor of lost comrades with fellow veterans in the Legion until 1951. Uh, they weren't allowed to lay wreaths, you know, during the, the, the Remembrance Day ceremonies at the National War Memorial until the mid 90s, uh, which is wild. Um, there is now actually a National Indigenous War Memorial, I think, next to the National War Memorial in Ottawa. So that's something nice. But I think it's just important that, uh, you know, uh, we, we recognize that uh, Indigenous folks have played a, a large role. Uh, in, uh, in 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 defending in defending our country and uh, and we need to be recognizing those folks. So thank you for uh, uh, bearing with me to let me share kind of a couple of those pieces about uh, can, can my I inter- experience. Can I, yes, please. Can I just share? Something I would love that. First? Please, no, it was not bearing with you. Thank you mm-hmm. for thank you for just and 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 I want to acknowledge you for creating that space. To honor, honor indigenous people, I really, and no, you know, no need to rush through. If there is more, I think this is a practice that needs to be embedded in all that we do, because so many people do get stepped over and their contributions and who they are, identity gets stepped over. So I'm just acknowledging um, this practice that you have taken on and and thanking you. I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing particularly in, in Canada um, is, uh, you know, I think, you know, since, particularly since the George Floyd murder, there's been a lot of move towards sort of DEI 
you know, type work with a lot of companies. And, and it's great to see that uh, the, uh, the DEI consultants are, 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 are getting overworked now. And, and, and we've been trying to get one ourselves. It's taken six months to finally get a, a proposal from one because we've just been so busy, which is wonderful. Um, but one thing we learned quite early in our sort of DEI journey at our own company was that there's sort of DEI practices and then at least in Canada, there's truth and reconciliation practices, which are specific to sort of those indigenous people. And and we we signed on with a, a consultant called Len Pierre Consulting, really amazing guy. Look him up. Um, um, uh, and uh, and he is doing uh, basically uh, in, essentially indigenous DEI work. And he really recommended, and I've heard this from a few folks, that it's important for companies to have a truth and reconciliation sort of committee and a DEI committee kind of separate and that those 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 areas should be separated because often indigenous uh topics and needs often get lost in the in the DEI conversation and so uh I we're I've been fortunate enough to be at a company that's uh, been open to those things and been open to me sort of taking the lead to kind of bring those folks into our company but Len just does amazing work and he's also been involved in a lot of the uh, the sort of child and youth work with 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 our, our provincial government, so he's kind of connected to so you know some of the some of the services we provide. So yeah, it's been a, it's been an amazing journey, and uh, you know it's it's certainly I've only it's only tip of the iceberg as far as uh, kind of starting to learn some some more of those pieces. Um, and I've, oh, I've I've got several emails out to some more Indigenous folks in in Canada uh, to be on the podcast to kind of talk about sort of different aspects of uh, of the work. So yeah, I appreciate you uh, allowing allowing me to take some extra space to talk about that here, um, and I think it it in some ways it kind of fits into kind of the conversation we're going to have today. Mm-hmm. For sure. So, so I originally I reached out to uh, Jonathan um, um, initially, although Nasai, uh, you're also been on my list for a while. Uh, I, I, I generally I, I try to get folks that haven't been on you know, podcasts or other things in, in kind of recent times so that there's, mm-hmm. you know, either, you know, so, so A, I don't want to compete. I'm not, you know, I certainly don't, I'm not looking to sort of compete with the other podcasts and I'm definitely a fan of many of them and often credit them in the show notes. Uh, but also, uh, you know, I, I, I find that add a little space here and there and there might be some some new things to talk about and that sort of thing and so i had seen your name quite a bit uh around and so i was like okay once once she slows yes. down which maybe never um i'll reach out to her uh, <laughs> and so it was it was really fortunate when i reached out to jonathan because right away he 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 said you know i i liked i have sort of uh, collaborators that I like to do this kind of work with and he suggested a few different areas that we talked about and and when your name came up I was like yes sir I'm in um and so uh I, I it, it's great to kind of have you have you both on here uh I know the topic today is we're going to be talking about uh, sort of some uh, you know essentially kind of humility compassion reflection kind of those sorts of pieces so I'm looking yeah. forward to digging into that but kind of before we do that, I always like to get kind of uh, you know a bit of a bit of a uh, origin story or kind of a journey story uh, from my guests about you know both kind of how they got into the field, but also kind of how they came them came. I think you're this is my second episode with sort of two guests at the same time, so I'd love to hear sort of your individual journeys as well as kind of how you how you folks came together. Yeah, sounds great. Okay, which one of us goes first? Whoever wants to. 
<laughs> Go for it, Nasia. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, Jonathan Joseph Tarbox. I appreciate <laughs> it. Um, both, I mean, my my entry into the field has been um, it hasn't been linear. It's been interesting. And certainly my how Jonathan Tarbox and I came to know each other is very interesting. And it's a story. It's a story that I actually love sharing because um, it is certainly affirming of me. And it gives people I think it gives people insight into who Jonathan Tarbox is. So I will, I'll start, I'll start with my journey into the field. So I'm an old timer. I have been in the field for, look, it's, it's over 30 years now. It's a long time. I'm proud to say. So I started um, as a special ed teacher. I started as a special ed teacher, and back in the day, there was no credential called the Board Certified Behavior Analyst, right? So who did I get my training from? A speech path and a clinical psychologist. Um, I was working for the Chicago Public Schools, and... um, um, we had classrooms, classrooms that served learners with autism. And, you know, I had before then been a special ed teacher, but never really had worked closely with this population. And I remember, like, as I got my training, as I became acclimated towards these learners, it was just so fascinating to me. And I fell in love with the learners. I fell in love with the, the structure of the classroom. And a lot of people don't know this about me, except people who spend a lot of time with me, but I'm not very vocal. I'm not at all. And when I found myself in this classroom, one of the first um, pieces of training that I got was less talking equals more understanding. That was like a banner in my classroom. And I was like, great, because I'm not vocal and I just fit. And I don't know, whatever it is about me, those learners, they resonated with me. I have a uh, tend to have a quiet disposition and I'm less imposing. And that fit for this population of children mm. And I experienced more success with those learners that I had in any other time in my, you know, experience as a teacher and just loved it. And every year I wanted more and more and more. Um, Shortly after I started in that role, um, then they had the pyramid people come in and train. So I had exquisite experience. Exquisite training from Andy Bondi and his the pyramid team. And I got thoroughly and completely trained in PECs. Mm. You know, I just did a, a, a LinkedIn post not too long ago because I had a full circle moment. I had an opportunity to present with um Andy Bondi at in Georgia and share with him what that training did for me because he was one of the first people that said look it doesn't matter what your title is when we come in we train everybody and then the model that we were working under back then it was I was in the classroom as a special ed teacher and in my early career journey 
I um, supervised four paraprofessionals. So not only did I get the training, but the four paraprofessionals that I supervised also got it Mm -hmm. because in, in the pyramids wisdom, the children don't care about what your title is. All they know is, look, there's an adult in the classroom and everybody should have the same information. So it was absolutely exquisite. I think what what the pyramid training gave me and I didn't know it then was it really gave me an understanding of my role as a teacher Mm. and how I can support the people who are with me. You know, I always use kind of the metaphor when I'm in a classroom, I'm the head of the classroom as a teacher, but the paraprofessionals are the backbone. They carried everything. The paraprofessionals are the ones who work with the children. They knew them better than me. And through uh, the pyramid training, it strengthened my relationship with them and my regard for them. And I will tell you, that's probably professionally one of my greatest strengths is how to work within a team. Mm. And I think that training definitely set the foundation for that. How to be a leader first, a leader beyond a title, and then how to work within the context of a team on behalf of, of these very unique learners. So that was my segue into the field. Mm. I did that for many, 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 many moons. Um, I didn't get certified until much later in my career, until I actually had to. So I was supervising um, a multitude of people. And by the time I got my, uh, well, I'll I'll tell you how I actually came to get certified as a, a behavior analyst. I had started setting up programs. I became really fluent in teaching and I had begun to set up programs for school districts in Illinois. You know, they heard about me and what I did. So I worked for several districts and I showed them how to set up programs that incorporated parent support, that incorporated home visiting. And when I did that, we started hiring these PCBAs. Hmm. And the first thing they would ask me when I would give the feedback, I would share the feedback, they would say, well, do you have a BCBA credential? That was it. So really, when it became an issue, when when I didn't feel I was effective or I couldn't be heard because I had something valuable to share for people earlier in, in their career who could really benefit, from my over at that point, over um, 15 years of experience, that's what drove me back in my 40s to get the BCBA credential. Mm-hmm. So I'm recently certified. Um, and I also say that to say because a lot of people think, oh, you're not in the field unless you're a BCBA. That's not mm-hmm. true. Mm-hmm. We have a multiple, a multitude of people and roles who work within the field who are not board certified. And I was one of them. Mm-hmm. So that was my entry level into the field. And for many, many moons, um, I did that. I uh, served uh, several years as a tenure track professor at Chicago State University in the uh, special education program and was happily happily a practitioner then and this is where my brother Jonathan Tarbox comes in so I'm happily doing my thing in Illinois um I had 
a group of women that I would uh, pull together and I would provide continuing education within the context of my living room mm-hmm. or the public library. And one of them shared with me, this little group, she shared, now, and I'll share her name. Her name is Monica Smiley. She's a BCBA here in Illinois. She said, Nasia, uh, Jonathan Tarbach sent out this call for papers. I said, oh, okay. I didn't know who Jonathan Tarbox was. Sorry, Jonathan. I did not know. That's quite and, all right. <laughs> and I and I and I read it. And I still I still have it. I still have what she sent me. It was a beautiful call and it spoke to me. It said, you don't have to be a male, you don't have to have a PhD, and you don't have to be white. We invite you to uh, write a paper. And I said, oh. Okay, yeah, this is for me too. So that's exactly hmm. what I began to do. And and I looked and what Jonathan wrote was so approachable. Like I had no idea this man was like famous and, and was a big name, but what he wrote was approachable. And it kind of called me to reach out to him. Mm-hmm. And he was like, okay, Nasia, this is great. Um, I please send me some ideas. And I sent him and I, and I still have that email. I sent him several ideas of what I, what it is I thought I could write about, you know, at this time I'm in the field for several years. I think I had an idea and and I think I still need to do this. Um, Sexuality, as far as supporting um, the sexuality of individual adults in, and with developmental disabilities, um, there was just parents. I, I think I had an idea of maybe writing about when to uh, share with parents that there are some concerns. It was really good stuff that mm. came as a result of years and years of working in the field. And then I said, you know, also, I, I think I want to write about Black women and what we experience in these field, in this mm. field. And he replied back. He said, you know what, Nasia, all these are great to write about. But you know what? This topic, this one right here about black women, black women and barriers to leadership. Guess what? That's one I just can't live without. Hmm. And right there, I said, OK, well, we what I don't want to be responsible for is Jonathan Joseph Tarbox not living. So I, <laughs> so awesome. I did. I did. Um, just jot, jotted some thoughts down and connected with these this group of support that I had here in Illinois and heard from other women. And I tell you, it was, it was these women end up coming to my house and we probably talked for a good eight hours hmm. um, just on what we had all experience within the field. And I had no idea that this article would be so well received. And mind you, I want to share, I think this is important. Hmm. This is before, this was before the world had erupted around race. Hmm. This happened before then. By the time the world had erupted, I was already set to go to print then. (laughs) But all of this and you know, Jonathan, again, he he was able to provide me with the editorial support that I needed. And we got this message out. And what I find was I wrote it from 
my heart. Black women in various the leadership in ABA. But what I found was, and even today, you know, two years later, there are women women from all walks of life who connect with me and let me know how much they resonated with that article. It's not just black women, Mm. it's white women, it's other women of color. Um, Because again, I speak, I was speaking from what was very personal to me, but again, what is most personal is also most universal. That's Carl Mm. Rogers, the psychologist. And that was through that process, I became acquainted with Jonathan Joseph Tarbox, and we have had ever since then a wonderful working relationship that I greatly, greatly value and, um, and uh, I'm appreciative of. So that's it. So that that so you 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 haven't known each other for all that long then just just a few years and it sounds maybe like three years or something yeah. yes and 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 just from the conversations and and the things I've seen it sounded like it was a lot longer I feel like maybe it's quite possible you you two feel like you've known each other for quite a lot longer definitely it feels like <laughs> that it feels like that but there's alignment there. There is definitely values alignment, mm. which is what I resonated with from the very beginning. You know, one thing that I can say is that in this process, and I don't want to monopolize this entire conversation, (laughs) but I know that in this process, one thing that I have found is the more vocal that I do get, the more I find the only other term I can use and for, you know, give me another one if it's out there is I find my people, people whose values are aligned with mine. You know, you were one of them, Ben. You know, you were in those early conversations and and you've kind of watched my journey unfold. But the more I talk, it's other people are saying, yeah, Nasia, me too. I, yeah, I resonate with that. And I find people that I can get in community and conversation with. Yeah, yeah, I know. And, and, and reflecting on when I first met you, the, you, you taught me um the importance of discomfort and wow. and sitting with discomfort this was a concept i had never sort of thought about um you know I, i've shared before that you know as i think many folks have experienced uh, sort of a, a, an awakening of sorts after george floyd um and i'm definitely one of them you know and, and really started recognizing a lot of biases and things that i had to myself um, I just had uh, I just interviewed a couple of days ago uh, Liz Fong, um, and we were kind of talking about some of this stuff as well, and and just uh, just just how how yeah how 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 far we've come, but how how far we still have to go. I think on on, on this journey, uh, but yeah, I, I definitely that the the, the sitting with discomfort has been probably the the single most important lesson in this journey for me because it's taught me that discomfort doesn't mean you know imposed guilt it doesn't mean you know um i'm a bad person you know mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, and it's usually after i've said something or written something uh, that that discomfort appears um or after someone said something that uh, you know completely you know uh rips apart my belief structure um with just two words or whatever, but uh, I now look for it. I n- I'm now sort of somewhat excited about the discomfort because that means yes. a 
you know, I'm growing. Um, yes. And B, um, you know, I'm not a sociopath. You know, this this <laughs> this stuff has some meaning. This stuff has some meaning to me. You know, it, it, you yeah. know, I, you know, if I didn't have those feelings, I, I think I'd almost be, you know, more afraid. I love it, and and what I think in my mind, because what has happened in a in a couple few years is that I have gotten much more fluent in my understanding of act Mm -hmm. and my understanding of some of these processes um, and self-imposed rules that I have. So Mm -hmm. when I hear you say that, you know, I think transformation of stimulus function. And I, and I know I have, I have had a transformation as well. So Mm -hmm. thank you for sharing that, Ben. I am so pleased and honored that if in some way I have contributed to transformation of growth, transformation Mm -hmm. and growth in your life. Thank you for sharing that with me. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is compassion. Absolutely. Um, All right, Jonathan, in your court now, where'd you come from? Uh, Let's see. So um, I think just, I mean, every time I spend some time with Nasia, it's like, um, like I'm breathing like pure oxygen for the first time again or something. It's just really, um, (laughs) and you know, that's from the heart, Nasia. Um, I do. So, uh, yeah, so I gotta, I gotta definitely talk about, uh, our relationship and where we came from first, mm-hmm. just as that's the freshest thing. And maybe mm-hmm. I'll, if I remember, I'll get to my sort of origin story, but sure. yeah, there's the story that Nasia told about us first, um, working together, uh, was really, really transformative for me as well. And it was way early in my journey as, um, kind of pivoting towards social justice in my career as a behavior analyst. Um, I, I had always cared about social justice. I, my parents were hippies and like my earliest childhood memories were at like no nukes demonstrations in the 80s where we were trying mm. to, you know, stop nuclear proliferation and stuff. And so I had been involved in social justice, but really, honestly, uh, and actually my undergrad, when I was in undergrad, my uh, my thesis was on uh, nonviolent, compassionate community building and how to produce uh, change and increasing compassion and nonviolence and in our communities. I was a political mm. science major, actually, which mm. is weird, but uh mm. Anyways, um, when I started in behavior analysis, I thought that my life was moving away from all of that uh, work and social justice and compassion. Um, And then honestly, uh, Nasia, working with you was one of my very earliest pieces that helped me pivot back towards where I really feel like I belong and where kind of my my real home in behavior analysis, Mm -hmm. which is about um, justice and equality Mm -hmm. and and. creating the world that we actually want to live in inside our science, uh, which is for me just so much more fundamentally important than increasing or decreasing specific behaviors. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about creating a world that where people really are t- treated equally and, and with equity and um, voices are elevated and respected and human mm-hmm. beings are treated with dignity. And so, um, yeah, that was that pivot uh, was really, really important. It kind of started with my involvement in WEBA, actually, the Women in Behavior Analysis yeah. Conference, um, which was um, pretty early on, I think about six years ago or so. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we we created this. Um, well, so there was major uh, 
major social upheaval around the Me Too movement. Right. Um, and in response to that, uh, um, me and some other folks at the Journal of Behavior Analysis and Practice realized, like, wait a minute, we need to use our power and our privilege to do something about this. And so we decided to create a special issue on um, equity, uh, diversity and equity in behavior analysis. And so that was that call for papers that Nasia mm. saw um, and that that's how Nasia and I first met was through that. Um, and uh, yeah, so pivoting towards that and, you know, me realizing like I am not an expert in this. Uh, being a white male with a lot of power and privilege in the field of behavior analysis, it's not like these topics and this time in our cultural evolution is really not an opportunity for me to, to take a leadership role. It's an opportunity for me to be a powerful ally if I can and to use my, my power and my privilege to amplify other people's voices and to create um, bridges and create create connections. Mm-hmm. And if I'm just being honest, uh, geez, whatever that was, about three, four years ago, I looked around at my network of colleagues and friends in behavior analysis, and I just asked myself, how white is it? And it was pretty damn white. And yeah. uh, in my whole career, I had had maybe two or three black colleagues in my, you know, whatever that was at that point, 18 years of working in the field. Um, and so I really, um, I don't know, I really started to question that. And and I, I identified that as an area for growth, let's just say. Right. So, Nasia, you were one of the first uh, black behavior analysts who really gave me an opportunity. Um, and wow. who, who welcomed me and invited me. Um, and trusted me, uh, which was really, really valuable to me um, and really mm. meant a great deal. So, yeah. And then the work grew from there. And now I, I really want to say um, other folks like Denisha Jingles, too, has really given me so many opportunities. I, I consider her a mentor in social justice and racial justice yes. Um, yes. and has has challenged me and challenged us um, and also given given us opportunities to grow and thrive yes. and improve ourselves. So, um, yeah. So. That I'm just really uh, privileged and happy to be here. And so yeah, that's um, cool. in this podcast right now with Nasia, but also <laughs> in this moment, right? Yes. In, yeah. in evolution as a field. I think it's a special time. Yeah. Oh wow. This is great. I didn't I didn't know a lot of this, Jonathan. Mm. So <laughs> it's it's great. Well, Jonathan, your your story resonates for me as well. Certainly not going as far back. Um, um, I, I had no idea until I, I just recently watched uh, I think it was your uh your conversation with uh, the behavioral view folks. Um, mm. And uh, I had no idea that uh, you had that, that undergrad degree until that moment. And that, that sort mm-hmm. of explains a lot of things <laughs> as far as the direction you kind of have, have taken things, uh, you know, not, not too many. Fo- Usually we hear about folks that kind of do a PhD in something different to sort of expand themselves. We don't often hear about folks where it's their undergrad. That was, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the, the pivotal learning that really guided the direction they kind of took things. So I think that's really cool. Um, it is. Can I inter- interject please, yeah, something interject here? All the time. I did not know that. And that's something Mm. that we have in common, Jonathan, Mm. because I, too, was a political science undergrad. My plan was I wanted to go to law school Mm. and I didn't. So that is interesting. I'm so glad I was here to get that information. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) And so your and so your 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 points about sort of the power and the privilege and sort of trying to sort of surround yourself with sort of some different some 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 different folks um, really resonates for me. I, 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 in fact, in my whole life, I knew I could count on one hand, the number of black individuals I'd ever known. Um, Mm. um, And only one of them, I think was really a closer friend. 
Um, um, uh, and that was like 20 odd years ago. And since then, none. Uh, and has really none in my life and really noticed that in our field as well uh, up here is, is uh, definitely a predominantly white. Uh, although we do have, a, uh, I think, we're, because of the location we are in sort of British Columbia, we do have a, a, a large amount of Asian behavior analysts that I've been able to connect mm-hmm. with, which has been really, really wonderful. Um, but the podcast is sort of uh, the, the the point of the podcast uh, is kind of res- is reminds me of kind of what you were saying. And, and for me, it's really been about um, um, trying to bring in different voices and uplift different voices, but also connect with a lot of folks from sort of diverse backgrounds, because, you know, I, I you know, I, I think as, as, you know, I, I think maybe you, you, you could be an exception, Jonathan, but I think generally speaking, it's sort of, you know, white male behavior analysts, you know, are, are lacking a lot of perspective um, um, in a lot of ways. And I, and I found that I've learned a whole lot from from the different guests that I've had on. I, 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 my very first podcast guest was whom at the time, I believe, and I think there's two now, but was the only um, or three, maybe now the only black behavior analyst in our province. And I was mm-hmm. able to track her down and bring her on as sort of the first guest because I really wanted to sort of set that foundation as this this is the purpose of the podcast. It's not uh, to sort of, you know, bring on the usual faces and talk about stimulus control and, you know, all that fun <laughs> jargon. I, you know, I think there's there's enough of that information out there. I really wanted to sort of, you know, be an avenue to sort of uplift these voices. But I also wanted to be able to do that beyond 2020 um, because I found I feel like and I'm certainly not jamming you know other other mediums and other folks but it does seem like you know a lot of those voices stopped coming on the podcast and stopped you know being invited to these sorts of different things you know within a year or so after after george floyd which was somewhat disappointing and in fact there was even some research i think who, who was it that I had on was it um it was either it was either dr hollands or or melody um that I had on uh anyway one of them was just telling me about sort of and they're the, both wonderful by the way they are wonderful yeah uh, just absolutely. let me interject that absolutely yes. yeah let and, me and, just give since you mentioned them let me give their full da- names dr sure. nicole hollins and Thank melody sylvain i just yes. love them both so yeah yeah, no, they're wonderful, and 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 I've had uh, you know, and, and and quite a few others. I had I had May Bulbrin on recently. Yeah, really, really, really cool. Um, and 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 several other kind of uh, that that are coming on, coming on soon. But they, she was talking about, uh, I think it was her. She was talking about a study they did on, um, on on uh, on 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 sort of diversity conversations in social media um and uh and 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 podcasts and whatnot and they found sort of pre-george floyd it was zero percent of the podcasts sort of addressed racism in any way post-george floyd that number jumped to a not very massive 16 percent uh which surprised me um and so you know it's been and and i'm certainly not trying to sort of toot my own horn today because this is about you folk but uh just your 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 points really resonated for me that 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 that's that's been my goal and and so you know i i feel like if if you're doing something similar that i must be on the right track yeah i do want to back up just a little bit yeah just a little bit um this is important and i'm sure we'll get to this in the course of our conversation Mm. But certainly, I have I've definitely been on a journey in the past couple few years, mm. and I've had my own transformations. Mm. 
One of the things that in my talks, as I'm talking to different, um, at different conferences, one of the mm. things that I'm presenting people to is because there's a tendency to conflate power and privilege with white males. Mm. And certainly power and privilege exists within that space. Mm. But what I found over the course in my journey over the past couple of years that it is valuable, it is necessary for us all to understand where our power and privilege is. Mm. I have an activity that I do that just looks at my, what, what are my own privileges? I have them mm -hmm. just because that's, what what I try to help folks understand or invite people to really look at as power and privilege, not good, bad, right or wrong. Mm. But when we're not present to our power and privilege and we interact with the rest of the world, like mm. they have the same power and privilege that we do, then we're going to others people's experience of us, of us may not might not be appetitive. So for me, I'm a middle-aged, well-educated Black woman, I have a lot of power. Mm -hmm. I do. If I interacted with the rest of the world like they had the same powers and the same privileges as me, I think about how I might how others might experience me. So it's just mm. because we, I know we, we have a multitude of different people from different identities listening. Mm -hmm. It's just an invitation for everyone, all of us to really look at what our power is. Where is our power? Where is our privilege? I'm able-bodied. And I know when I'm moving around my environment, I can really move freely. Mm -hmm. I had to support individuals for a number of years in the community. Do you know how difficult it is to get a power chair through a McDonald's door? It's very difficult. Yes. So again, I'm present to what my own power and privilege is. And I that's my invitation to everyone. Mm. Yeah, I really love that. Yeah, the concept of uh, intersectionality has been really, uh, really, really useful for me in considering mm. that too. And that that's one thing that I've learned from my uh, social justice mentors is no matter uh, who we are, where we come from, or where we're standing, we we can be an ally to somebody. There's somebody who uh, perhaps has less power or privilege. Yeah. Um, and so that's a, has been a really powerful uh, thing to consider and also helps, like, you know, like you said, Nasia, it helps, I think, direct attention away from sort of demonizing people or individual backgrounds yes. to just taking responsibility for what, we, what, what can we do here? What contribution can I make in this particular context? How can I be a more effective ally? Uh, whoever it is that I'm hanging out with or standing across from. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, and I, you know, and I think the the it's a really really good point because it's also the 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 finger pointing at the white man doesn't necessarily solve any problems, um, you know, or or bring people on board with wanting to be part of the conversation um, as soon as you see, you know if you, if you kind of phrase things that way. So I think yeah, that's that's really important. Um. 
So we're talking about, uh, we kind of chatted through the email before, um, that, that humility, compassion, and reflection were going to kind of be the, the, mm-hmm. the focus of today's conversation. And these are, these are really big words. Um, and for someone like me, who's a, a really literal thinker and kind of a black and white thinker, you know, that's, I think that may be part of the ADHD uh, kicking mm-hmm. in there. Um, uh, you know, I struggle with uh, some of these concepts. Um, and uh, at the same time, I also think, you know, there's people in our field that struggle with these concepts because they might put them under sort of that, that, that category of, of mentalism or whatever which is a term that you know i i i i detest in our field um for a budget for a bunch of different reasons but uh, we won't get into that uh but you know I, but it does although it although the concept of mentalism i think does is probably a, a big reason why some of these 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 terms haven't been discussed for a long time in our field because we just sort of you know shoved out other concepts that weren't sort of fitting in the, in the, in the, in the behavioral ease jargon. Um, um, I've heard a bit on humility and certainly in terms of kind of culture humility, you know, with Dr. Wright's work and, and, uh, you know, it's been, it's been something that I think a lot of other folks have been talking about more recently, I think particularly in sort of the indigenous circles that I've been in uh, cultural safety seems to be, you know, uh, I think a, a more important term. It's um, it almost kind of reminds me of sort of Maslow and sort of we need that safety piece first before we can even, you know, sort of get to some other pieces. So there, there you know, there's lots of different terms in there. In fact, Dr. Fogg and I talk about how there was so many different terms around sort of that follow after the word cultural, um, but uh, <laughs> uh, that, that that can make things a bit confusing. But um, um, so so first, I think I'd, I'd like to just you know I've been trying to think about I I, I don't even know what. I think some of these things really mean. Um, uh, and so I, I thought maybe a good start might be to just help with a, a bit of definition around like humility, compassion, and reflection um, from, from either. I, I, I'm not sure who's, who's best to take the question, but. Either way. Either way. I'll let you go first, Jonathan. On, <laughs> okay. On nice. this one. Okay. So um I don't have a great behavioral sort of functional definition of humility, but I'm going to think on that for a little bit. But um, but some of the concepts that I've been working on related to humility are uh, vulnerability Mm. uh, and authenticity. And so for me, what that means is sort of willingness to show up as an imperfect human uh, in whatever circumstance I'm in right now. And so um, Mm. and I think that starts from an assumption that uh, the you know, the kind of human that I am is good enough. It doesn't mean I have perfect competence in every skill, obviously, no one would say that. But uh, the fact that I'm a human being, if I show up as me, the real me, that is actually good enough for this, Mm. in this moment in my life. And I'm going to do my best. And, Mm. and so sort of, that's almost sort of a self-compassion piece of just like, I'm, I'm enough. I'm okay. I'm Mm. the, the the real me is here now and I'm going to try my best. And then to me, humility also involves um, an orientation towards service. And so um, I Mm. often think of a a phrase that I got from my buddy, Tom Sabo, that is, uh, you know, he says, sometimes, you know, when I go into a difficult situation, uh, and I find myself kind of anxious or something, I just ask myself, how can I be of service in this situation? Mm. And so for me, humility is very much about um, a curiosity about how can I be of service? How how can I make a contribution? Um, not having to be great or perfect mm. or show off. I don't have to pass any kind of test. 
but how can the real me uh, be of service to the other human beings in the situation? That gave me the tingles. <laughs> it, it really, it really did. And there's, there's a piece in there that I so love you, you vocalized and communicated, and that is a curiosity. Mm. So I, I just want to piggyback on that. Mm. If you don't mind, Jonathan mm. Joseph Tarbox, oh, yeah, I want to piggyback on that piece. Mm. Humility, you know, the root word we use is humble, which is decentering one, the importance of oneself, mm. you know, uh, not that you're not important, you just decenter yourself. And the next piece of it, humility, is really just curiosity going in with the assumption you just don't know it all. You don't know it and you certainly don't know it all. So just think about that. If we are approach our communication, if we organize our behavior around, you know what, I have something to learn here. Mm. And we go in with that mindset that creates different outcomes. If we go in from a place of inquiry, ready to learn, ready to be curious, ready to notice, that's mm. a different experience than, okay, I'm going here. I'm going to tell you, <laughs> I know what needs to be done and I have the expertise and the experience and I, that's knowing is very, it feels very different than being open to learning. So I think at the root, one of the roots of humility is being open. Really, all of us, just sit with that for a minute. Open yourself up to, to noticing and being open to learning mm. about someone else. Because when we talk about cultural humility, we know culture is about identity, being open to learning about someone else, someone, what someone else may need, what mm. someone else may experience. That's a shift that creates a shift, I think, in outcomes. Mm. Yeah, I really agree. And, uh, oh no, go ahead, Ben. Well, no, I, I, I sort of, I had a question about, or wonder what your thoughts were. You were talking about humility and sort of, um, um, uh, you know, um, knowing that we, you know, we don't know everything and, and sort of being willing to sort of, you know, continually come into a situation, not knowing anything um, in, in that sort of way. And that seems, that seems great and, 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 and healthy. But then I hear a lot of folks talking about imposter syndrome mm -hmm. and imposter syndrome kind of topographically looks kind of the same uh, you know <laughs> you, you know you kind of walk into a situation you don't know what's going on the only difference is i suppose is, is sort of that inside voice changes um is there a connection there and 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 can learning and and i think i probably know the answer here but can learning about humility and and and, and maybe reflection and self-compassion you know maybe be the key to sort of uh changing that sort of uh that 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 piece well we haven't got to reflection yet i have a mm. whole a lot to share around reflection well, just the humility part then <laughs> but for for humility as mm. someone who uh as someone who experienced this thing that we call imposter syndrome mm. 
um, for a very long time. If folks who are uh, listening right now, if you have an opportunity to visit much of my early work, early meaning like when I was out in, in in our community, I showed up very differently. Very, and a lot of that was the way I was organizing my behavior is, okay, I'm a behavior analyst. This is how I should show up. This is what I should know. These are the terms I should speak. Mm-hmm. And that chatter in my head had me kind of show up in a different way. When I started to just have practice with more humility, just with myself. You know what? No, I don't know it all. And because I'm a BCBA doesn't necessarily mean um, I have the answer. When When I started really embracing that, is when my message started to change. It's interesting. I I promise you this is true. Mm. The more human I show up, the more people resonate with what it is I'm saying. Mm. When I show up as this person who has to know all the words and get it right, it, it creates a division. It separates me and it impacts my message. When I'm showing up, And pretty much I could read a label off a soup can, but if it's authentic, (laughs) there's, there is a, a, people are resonating with that authenticity. So there is definitely, I think, a connection between this knowing and imposter syndrome. And this imposter syndrome, I think the biggest disservice that it does to us as human beings is it separates us. And if we can get past that, oh my goodness, there's a world of connection. Mm. I have been able to connect just when I let it all down. When I start saying things like, I don't know, let's go find the answer together. That creates a connection. Mm. That's a bridge. But when I'm pretending, it takes a lot of energy to pretend to be somebody (laughs) or to, it really does, or pretend Mm. to have the answer. Mm-hmm. You know, I find that human beings, at least in my case, have been very forgiving of what it is I don't know. If they mm-hmm. know my commitment is to exploring and engaging in the inquiry with them or alone. But mm-hmm. when I am able to share, you know what, I don't know that. There's something mm-hmm. human in that the other human beings resonate with. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I love that. And I think um, when we show up with humility and authenticity, we're giving the other human being standing across from us permission to do the same. Mm. And so when we show that we're willing to uh, uh, bear our imperfections, we're letting other people know that it's safe for them to do the same thing. Mm. And, and, and what would we want more from interactions with other humans other than knowing that we're safe to be us and to not have to be perfect. And so we show that to others uh, through Mm. humility and authenticity. And I think imposter syndrome for people who are struggling with it. um, Well, and okay, so just like everything else that has a label, uh, imposter syndrome is not a disorder. It's very normal. There's a lot of research showing that that even people at the end of their careers who have 100 publications, they still suffer from imposter syndrome, quote unquote. And Mm. so it's very normal human thing to have doubts and and to question whether or not you're good enough. And so the problem isn't the presence of those thoughts and doubts. The problem is how we choose to engage with them and, mm. and what patterns of behavior we've built up with 
engaging with them. And if those patterns of behavior are avoidant, and so we're mostly focused on our imposter thoughts and how we can make those go away or how we can avoid the discomfort of them, then we're going to do a bunch of stuff that is invalidating and othering, mm-hmm. like trying to sound like we're an expert and using all the fancy jargon. And, uh, and, and so and so really, um, I think humility, and what I've learned from folks like Nasia, humility is about moving towards. It's not about moving away and, and avoidance. It's about opening up and moving towards discomfort and moving towards other humans. Like I'm here yes. for you. My attention is oriented towards you. It's not oriented towards my own thoughts about myself and whether or not mm. I'm good enough. Mm. And when I notice those thoughts show up, I notice them, thank my mind for them sarcastically, and then bring my attention back to the other human being in front of me. Um, and maybe ask again, like, how can I be of service? What can I learn about you? How can I, how, how can you teach me something new that I didn't know, even though I supposedly have the credentials next to my name and I might be the experts, mm-hmm. supposedly, um, you are the expert in your experience. Uh, and, and that is always true of every human we will ever interact with until we die. That other human is the expert in their experience. We yeah. are not. Are you a BCBA supervisor looking to streamline your practice? Or maybe you're working towards your BCBA and need to find the right supervisor. Homehouse offers tools that make supervision so much more enjoyable for both supervisor and supervisee. For supervisors, they offer easy meeting documentation, competency tracking, monthly verification forms, a built-in supervision curriculum, and so much more. For supervisees, Homehouse has a fieldwork tracker with built-in auditing, monthly verification forms, a curriculum, quizzes, and more. If you're looking for a supervisor, they even have a supervision marketplace where you can connect with BCBAs until you find your perfect match. Kind of like professional dating. For more information, go to whomhouse.com forward slash speak or search whomhouse on Google. The second secret word is connection. Mm. Yeah. I think one other piece around the imposter syndrome, and I know this wasn't something we talked about before, but as far as a discussion topic, but is, is it seems, and this could just be from my perspective, but it, it seems like this, the, the, this, this would be, this is easier for folks who've been around for a while. It seems uh, like uh, imposter syndrome seems to be something that's coming up a lot for brand new folks in the field, young, young BCBAs, just, just, you know, uh, and uh, I've, I've had many folks on now and it's interesting hearing the, the their origin story of, you know, undergrad masters, PhD, all in the span of three years and, and never actually, you know, getting any kind of work experience in between there, or maybe just getting work experience in the context of the practicums of the, of the universities they're working at. And so it doesn't surprise me that you have these sort of, you know, early 20 somethings PhDs that are now feeling, whoa, okay, I'm now out in the free world here. Um, I'm out of school. Um, uh, but I, I really haven't lived a lot of life yet. Um, and, and, and try to kind of come to that. Whereas for me, I mean, it was a lot more than sort of uh, George Floyd and Nasia that that you know that that brought me to where I am. I you know I I I'm you know I, and I wouldn't have shared any of this stuff years ago, but now I have no problem sort of opening up about my past. And you know I've spent decades in therapy um, for a bunch of different things mm-hmm. in life, as many of folks have 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 things in life, um, and I still am. I'm still in it today. Um, and uh, you know and and you know I. I Got a diagnosis recently. I'm on medication now. I mean, there, there's a lot of things have kind of lined up, you know, uh, over over sort of 20 years of working at myself. 
that have led me to the point where I can start recognizing some of these things um, and start having these conversations and 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 feel, feeling comfortable myself and being able to be authentic and vulnerable and all those sorts of things. That's a much different story for, you know, the 20-something PhD that sort of come out of there. And I'm just curious what your thoughts are on sort of, you know, helping folks like this sort of get to, you know, uh, you know, uh, kind of a better place. I love that question, Ben. I really do. I will share from my own lens. I'm 51 years old. And I, I know I've said this in, in uh, presentations. Um, how do we transmit culture in our fields? And one of the ways, um, well, I think we transmit culture in a few different ways. It is through our training programs, through our journals, and uh, conferences, and most definitely through our supervision practices. Mm. I will say one of the ways we can address this, one of the ways, because I have thoughts about other ways we can do it, is by us, those of us who are supervising, really getting in touch with, you know, how we present to our supervisees, how mm. we manage those relationships. Are we the type of supervisor that we have to be perfect or do we create space for vulnerability? Mm. Do we create space for supervisees to share feedback with us? Mm. So I think as far as addressing our early career practitioners, I think supervision can be a powerful means mm. to really dismantle this notion that we have to know it all and do it all. Mm -hmm. um, and attending to that supervisory relationship, um, attending to mentee, mentor relationships, mm. uh, pre and post supervision. Mm. I think yeah, it I, is a, I'm sorry. No, no, you, I interrupted you. Sorry. It's, I, I just think it can be a powerful practice towards what you're speaking to. Ben. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think it does start at the beginning and many people listening are probably having thoughts like, well, I'm not Mrs. Big Shot or whatever. I don't influence mm -hmm. that many people. And I'm going to say that's not true at all. You influence every human being that you interact with every day. Um, and as soon as you're not the newest person on the team, you're overlapping and you're giving feedback to somebody else and you're showing them how it's done on the job. Mm -hmm. Even if you're just one step up from the very entry level, you're mentoring somebody. Um, and so the way that we do that, the way that we choose to do that has uh, major impacts on that person's future career and, and mm. how they view their place in our profession and even like the purpose, the meaning and purpose in our profession. And so mm -hmm. I think, Nasia, what you said about um, allowing space to for vulnerability and imperfection is super, super important. Um, and and uh, I think modeling it a little bit is is important. So, for example, um, if, a, if, if you're struggling, I think um, it's good to say sometimes, you know what, you know, when someone says, how are you doing today? It's good to say something like, you know what, I'm actually really stressed out right now. You know, mm. I'm excited to be here with you and I'm going to be focused. I'm going to be present, but I am actually kind of dealing with some stress right now. And then mm. move on to the mm. professional stuff. Just showing mm. a little bit of humanity and imperfection is really meaningful. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I think things like, you know, man, blaming the organism, 
moves us away from compassion and, and it moves us towards um, creating a culture where people probably feel like they have to have imposter syndrome. So for example, mm. if our newer employees show up and maybe they're complaining, maybe they don't have the work ethic and we notice ourselves saying things like, oh, those damn millennials or Generation Z or whatever, that's blaming the organism. That's us coming up with explanations for the employee's behavior that blames them. Mm. Um, and that's not who we are in behavior analysis. We're about looking at the system, the environment and the larger context that the person's behaving in. And we have a role to play in that too. And so if we blame yeah. the person or the generation or the personality, um, it doesn't help us do anything useful. And yeah. so if, if instead we say, well, okay, maybe they are com coming from somewhere a little bit different. Maybe they do have a little bit different cultural or generational perspective on work. I wonder if there's something we can learn from that. And I wonder if there's a way we can be more flexible in our um, expectations of what professionalism is while also still getting the job done and serving the people that we serve. Um, and, you know, maybe it's okay to have more mental health days. Maybe it's okay to, you know, cry, you know, in a supervision meeting, if that's what mm -hmm. a person needs to do a little bit, not because we're traumatizing them, but maybe mm -hmm. they're really stressed out and sad. And it's, mm -hmm. it's okay if their eyes leak salt water for a second, it's not the end of the world, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think all of that is really important. And, and when we do that, I think what we're telling our, our younger, newer folks is that you don't have to worry about whether or not you're an imposter. There is no imposter. There's just the real you and the mm. job. And let's let's do this, you know. Mm. Love yeah, it. I really like that. And I also think um, there's there's probably a thought around kind of, you know, for lack of a better term, early intervention. We talk about with our with our kiddos the importance of you know getting at them you know as as young as possible. Well, I think the same goes for for our folks. And so I'm thinking of sort of our RBT courses and our RBT training even, and then our yes. RBT supervision because I think one of the, I think one of the at least I know for me one of the, sort of the biggest sort of, I suppose causes of imposter syndrome is this image of a bcba that i created in my head so many years mm -hmm. ago got to get those four letters because then i'll be i'll be a superstar i'll i'll be yeah. on par with all these other folks jonathan tarbucks has a has a bcba all of a bcba will be the same you know mm -hmm. and, and and if i'm thinking about that as someone who's just getting my rbt and that's sort of the thought process of in my head you know, and I'm just looking up to these mentors as as sort of gods or whatever. Um, you know, that, that's that's I'm, I'm going to crash and burn when I when I get those four letters after my name. So yes. I think starting early is probably really important too. I would agree. I would agree because that that is a mountain with no top. You know, trying to fill up, I'm not good enough, is a mountain with no top. So the more you get, the more you'll need to get. So mm. I would agree. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, we created this culture. And so yes. if there's a problem with our culture, it's our responsibility to to change yeah. it and to move towards a, a kinder, more compassionate, more accepting culture. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's, I mean, if, if, if the motor that's driving a lot of this stuff is relational framing behavior, uh, relational framing works in a nonlinear way. So it's like a nonlinear dynamical system where uh, a little bit of input produces a lot of output. So you can get mm -hmm. exponential effects of small, small amounts of training. Um, and that's both good and bad. And so what mm -hmm. that means is when we show up with uh, sort of aversiveness or rigidity early on in this person's career, and, and we make them think that it matters more if you can say the jargon than if you're a real human being with the kid, 
Um, that that's going to have a profound impact on their whole relational framing that surrounds their job and their career and what we do, the meaning and purpose in ABA. And then we're going to have to go back and try to fix that later. And it's much, much harder to fix it later than yeah. if we start with this, with the assumption that like you're here to empower other human beings and you're here to build a relationship with these human beings who trust you. Um, you're here to make their life more awesome. And here's some toolkits from ABA. And that's cool. We can learn the jargon and stuff, mm. but the protocol, the data, that's not our purpose. Those are tools that we use. Our purpose is something deeper and more important. And and what and what is your purpose? You know, like creating a space for the person to identify their purpose behind it. Yes. Oh my goodness. I love that, Jonathan. <laughs> Absolutely love that. Mm. So I think, you know, of the three terms for me anyway, humility is probably the easiest concept to kind of understand it's just you know opening your mind and and uh you know and being willing to learn and recognizing you don't know everything that's that's always been easy for me because i know i don't know everything um the other two though seem to be a little more difficult um uh we'll, we'll do reflection last because i know this yeah that's an important one for you to, to, to talk a bit about and uh and it's also one that, you know, has been a struggle for me. But compassion is something else I've struggled with. I don't know that I struggle with doing it. I, I, I Maybe I do it well. I have no idea. I, I just don't really understand what what it means. And and I know, I'm not looking for behavioral definitions. That's okay, Jonathan. I, I just want to know from, from, from your hearts. And I got one. Kind of, well, I'll, 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 I'll take one if you got it. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause I think that that'll be good for some folks. Uh, but um, yeah, I, I, it's a term I, I've never really been able to, 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 to kind of connect with it. I mean, a lot of these big terms sort of gr certainly like growing up again, understanding now that I was, you know, I had, you know, some, some, some severe things going on that weren't being diagnosed um, uh, explains a lot. Like, I, you know, when my, my, my mother would use sort of, you know, big words like respect and whatnot. And I had no idea what those terms <laughs> meant. And, you know, you're being disrespectful. And I don't know, I don't know what you mean. I would say yeah. that to her and say, you're being defensive when you say that. And I said, no, I really don't know what you mean. Um, and, uh, and, and it's taken me a long time to sort of understand some of these, you know, sort of basic sort of human living kind of terms and um and compassion is one of them that I, I still struggle with so i'd love to hear just more about kind of what what, what that means to you folks yeah i want to hear your behavioral yeah let's do it <laughs> okay <laughs> well the problem with behavioral jargon is a lot of times it's it takes us away from what we actually already know at the gut mm -hmm. level and what we already know with our hearts so i don't know how terribly useful it is, but we are science and we do need to be conceptually systematic. So, uh, so basically, uh, the, the, and so the, we have a, a, a conceptual paper and it's sort of a, a position paper that just got its final acceptance in behavior analysis and practice that, um, Christine, my friend and collaborator, Christine Rodriguez is the first author. Awesome. Um, and then, uh, my wife and longtime collaborator, Courtney Tarbox and I are co-authors on the paper just got its final acceptance at behavior analysis and practice. So hopefully that'll be available online in a few weeks. Cool. Um, but basically the definition that we came up with is we started with Taylor LeBlanc and Nosick's definition, which compassion involves a two phase thing. There's sort of two behaviors. First behavior is engaging in empathy, which means I see that you're suffering and I actually 
co-suffer with you a little bit. So I feel it. I, I might have both a cognitive uh, or a, a verbal piece, which means like, oh, I see your suffering. It's sort of a logical verbal piece, but then also an emotional response piece too. So in response to me seeing you suffering, I might actually feel your pain a little bit. I might feel a little sad when I see that you're sad. I might feel a little bit of distress when I see that you're distressed. So that's the first piece is empathizing. And then the second piece is doing something about it. Overt behavior aimed at alleviating another human being's suffering. So it's not pitying. It's not feeling bad for. It's sharing their emotional experience a little bit and then taking action on the outside to help that person to alleviate their suffering. And what does suffering mean from a behavior analytic perspective? Well, uh, the best that we could come up with is it's about your life being influenced by aversive stimuli in that moment. Mm. And so uh, alleviating suffering means if I'm alleviating your suffering, it means that my influence on your life and your environment right now uh, has the effect of alleviating the extent to which you're being pushed around by aversive stimulation. So that mm. means removing sources of negative reinforcement and punishment from your life and maybe helping you orient towards enduring beneficial sources of positive reinforcement. Mm. So in other words, I help your life be less influenced by stuff that sucks and more influenced by things you genuinely deeply care about. And so mm. you could start with the simplest example, like if you're cold, I'm going to hand you a jacket, right? That's like the simplest thing. Uh, but all the way up to like, if you're a parent and I'm training you, and I notice that a lot of your interactions with your child are centered around avoidance and negative reinforcement, then I'm I'm going to empower you with new ways of interacting with your child where both you and your child are accessing meaningful, rich, positive reinforcement that you really care about. And mm -hmm. so most of your interactions with your child are around what you guys love together, <laughs> as opposed to just, you know, trying to get through the day without, you know, coercing each other too much. Mm -hmm. Love that. I love the, um, and I think I've heard you share that definition before. Maybe have even yeah. heard Courtney and Kristen share it too. Yeah, we were on a panel um, together. Yes. The four of us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, it's not new and I love it. Thank you. Um, it's the, it, as I'm presenting, that is not the definition I'm using, but I'm going to incorporate it. Mm. I've been using the Strauss et al. article. Um, in their definition of compassion, which is not so far off. But one of the things that I've done in the last couple years is really start honing my understanding of compassion in our communication. Mm. Because our communication is it's low hanging fruit where it comes to the practice of compassion. What I love most about your uh, definition is the action and the action with. Mm. And when we commit to compassionate communication, it is really committing to um, exploring um, in conversation together, mm. keeping us connected in our conversation long enough to, especially in conflict, find resolution. You know, so often in our communication, especially, and, and I can say this, being 51 years old, so much of, of, of conflict is um, we don't have the tools to keep the conversation going. And we stop. It becomes aversive. Okay, I'm not going to talk to you. You say it the wrong word. Let's stop. And these tools that I'm learning with the technology of compassionate communication has definitely served for me to help continue the conversation. Four elements. 
observation without evaluation. When you Mm -hmm. think about it, how many of us in our speaking, we immediately go to judge somebody, make an evaluation of who they are. I know for myself, when that happens, even if I'm continuing in the conversation, I'm not fully present. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Another piece of that technology is being able to truly identify what our feelings are to stay Mm -hmm. connected in our communication. Most of us are trying to identify thoughts, not true feelings. Mm -hmm. I have learned in the past couple of years, really how to look at and and think about what I'm, what I'm feeling, especially as it relates to feelings that are painful. You know, we Mm -hmm. don't get a lot of training in dealing with the distress of being with the negative emotion, let alone being able to identify it and share what, what that is. Um, Identifying what our needs are once we, uh, once we are able to, once we are in touch with what we're feeling and then being able to communicate a request, Mm. truly a request, not a demand from someone, but being able to communicate a request. Uh, This this is what compassion in my communication has done for me and opened me up to, and it has leveled up my relationships. You Mm. know, it's leveled up my leadership. Why? Because at this point in my life, a lot of my leadership is in my conversation. Mm -hmm. And if I can speak in a way that keeps people connected, that's a bridge, especially in suffering and in conflict, there is often some suffering. It has been a powerful technology in my life. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. It's like a task analysis kind of, right? Of, of like how to go about uh, yeah. compassionate communication, especially in challenging yeah. situations. I got to I gotta read that one. That's really cool. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. yes. It's the Rosenthal text, Marshall okay. Rosenthal. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. Right yeah. on. Uh, and all this stuff will end up in the show notes for folks to to, to find. Awesome. Um, you know, oh, you know what? Yeah. Can please. I can I make one more note about compassion? Because one yes. um, a major one of the major neurodiversity advocates out there, Tara Vance, has specifically uh, uh, they Tara is really good at keeping us on our toes in behavior analysis. She doesn't cut us much slack, which I appreciate. She really pushes us hard, um, and I and I like that about them. Um, and one of the things that they've said recently is, "Hey, you know, I've noticed a lot of behavior analysts moving towards compassion and saying that compassion is the most important thing." And one interpretation of that is that if you are compassionate with people with autism, then you are feeling sorry for them because there's something wrong with them. And so then you're going to fix them. And that is absolutely not part of the definition of compassion that we are um, advocating and proposing. Yes. Um, the the perspective that we that that we are um, that. I'm not necessarily speaking for you, Nasia, but I think we're on the same page. Yeah, A lot of us are advocating for is called radical compassion. And what radical compassion means is you are deserving of my kindness and respect and, and to be treated with dignity because you're a human being, full stop. It doesn't matter what label you have. It doesn't matter what age you are, what, what your degree is, your diagnosis or anything else. It doesn't matter what our roles are. You, you are deserving of compassion because you're a human being. And so that's really important to know because that doesn't mean we're going to treat autistic people with compassion because they're autistic. It has nothing to do with that, actually. It has to do with they're a human being just like all other human beings are. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Jonathan. You know, I don't remember whether or not I shared it here earlier, but 
Yeah, for me, for me, compassion is about human dignity, mm. the yeah, work of that. human dignity. Um, mm. Yeah, so thank you. I'm in alignment with what you just shared. Yeah. Thank you. And one more thing, too, that I think mm. is worth noting is, uh, you know, every time we have like a new fad or a new flash in the pan in ABA every year mm. or two, it's like, oh, OK, there's a cool new tool for the toolkit or something. Yeah. And I actually don't think that compassion or compassion focused practice is one of the new tools in the toolkit. I advocate it for it as a foundation um, and actually like a maybe even like a, a cost of admission uh, to a helping profession. So that, it, that, you know, for me, if I'm not willing to treat other human beings with dignity and compassion, if I'm not willing to put that first before science, I actually don't think I have any business being in a helping profession. Mm. Of course, I care about the science. Of course, I care about our ethics code and evidence-based practice. But number one for me is treat that human being with dignity, period. Yeah. And if I'm finding myself falling down on that, then it's I don't even have any business to run the next discrete trial or to tell a parent what to do, or to use any jargon or anything else, I need to like stop, use my break card, take a break and check, check in with how can I treat this person with compassion first? Yes, mm. love it. Yeah, so makes me think of a few things. First off, I, I, Tara's, I had Tara on the podcast as well, I haven't published it yet. But, cool, cool. Uh, yeah, that's going to be, a, that might get some letters. Um, but uh, it was a good one. Um, um you know, it's just reflecting myself that the, the the piece around kind of empathy and, and it makes sense now why I've struggled with the term compassion because I've struggled with empathy as well for a lot, a lot of years. Um, um, and I attribute that to, to some things, which I, I won't get into here, uh, but also to this ADHD diagnosis um, that I have. And, and it you know, just being unable to sort of listen to a conversation and stay focused on what the person has to say, because, you know, squirrel essentially seeing so many things around <laughs> me, you know, I, 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 um, and, and just for those listening who maybe, you know, having some of those sorts of symptoms or whatever, and, uh, you know, and are thinking about kind of going that direction, highly recommend getting a diagnosis because ADHD medication is one of the few, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm just relaying what the psychiatrist told me. I'm, I'm by no means a doctor or medication expert, but medication is one of the few psychiatric disorders that has um, really sort of um, causation kind of research when it comes to the medication mm -hmm. being effective. Um, um, and it was it was after about a month of being on the medication, it was just a sudden change. I could suddenly yeah. be around four people. Those two could be talking and I could talk to these other people and not be listening to this other conversation. Yeah. And, and I noticed little things like watching, a, watching, you know, a, you know, sort of a, a rom-com or, or, or a sad movie or something for the first time ever in my life, my eyes were welling up at these movies um and i had no idea why i was suddenly i actually cried during some movies and i'd heard about this phenomenon for, for <laughs> all my life and didn't understand how that was possible and so there there you know there's actually you know there's actually you know a, 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 a chemical sort of a connection potentially sort of to, to to having empathy as well and and i've only recently been able to kind of have that now and and it's obviously improved my relationships on a whole lot of different levels. And I think I am, you know, able to now, because I, I, I'm, I'm looking at, uh, uh, I wrote down the definition, uh, Nasia, that you, because I, I saw you a couple weeks ago at the Stone Soup Conference. Um, oh. and, and, and I wrote, and during the conference, I wrote down 
how you defined compassion when you were talking. Um, and one of the first things you said was recognizing suffering. And this was something I, up until recently, I was not able to do in on, on any level. Um, mm. um, and so it, it makes a lot more sense to me why I, these are, these are concepts I didn't get. It was because yeah. of sort of pieces kind of before that. Yeah. And, and if I may chime in there, um, yeah. I, my interpretation of what you're saying, and of course, I don't know your history and all that sure. stuff. So I don't know for sure. But my first, my first blush sort of thought is, uh, if your attention, if your behavior of paying attention was really, really hard to focus on any one particular stimulus for an ongoing time, yep. and was easily distracted, then it makes sense that it would actually be really hard to empathize, because empathy does require paying attention to one particular person mm -hmm. and where they're coming from, maybe their facial expression, their body language, the words, their eyes mm -hmm. for a protracted period of time and not getting too distracted when your attention wanders, bringing it mm -hmm. back rapidly, you know? Um, and so that makes sense. I mean, I'm sure there's a chemical component too, but I think there's a behavioral component yeah. that, that was facilitated. Now, if your attention is less distracted, the behavior of paying attention, it's more focused in on that human being. You are going to notice they're suffering more. And I do want to say, man, we have a, a deficit in this area in our field, not just you, in our field. And I think we train this deficit when we train our new folks to, yes, this kid's upset, but just follow the protocol because consistency is key. You just have to follow mm -hmm. the protocol. What we're doing is we're training the paying attention behavior of our yeah. new RBTs to be oriented to a protocol in a data sheet. And to be away from the human suffering of that mm. child sitting across mm. from them. You see what I'm saying? Absolutely. And so you could have a kid who is genuinely feeling fear or distress or anxiety or frustration or whatever. And it's like, well, no, that's the protocol. Yeah, go ahead. Extinction burst, whatever. I don't care. I'm paying attention to the protocol. And yeah. we train our human beings to do that. Mm -hmm. And then we have to later on untrain that when we train them on compassion. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Let's not yeah. create that problem to begin with, you know? Yeah. That's a good point, Jonathan. And I must confess that that was my training Me too. so many years ago. Same. I remember somebody, the children would come in and as we were getting ready to work with them because of 20 years ago, this is what we did. Um, we had the little cubicles mm -hmm. and we were set to do the trials and the children would begin to cry. And my training was, oh, that's just normal. Don't worry about that. I was told that for years until I really started relying on my own just common sense and understanding that 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 absolutely was training me away from compassion. Hmm. Yeah, I was not just trained that it was normal. I was trained that it's good because extinction bursts teach the person that no matter how much they escalate, they can't escape the contingency. They are forced to comply with yep. the behavior analyst. And that man at the time, and, and the reason why that was justified at the time, so we thought was that's how we empower them to live a better life in the future because they won't have problem behavior. They'll be able to go do stuff in the future. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's sort of like the the heart the heart was in the right place sort of, but like the, the, the execution, the way of going about it was completely uncompassionate and only focused on that long-term outcome not at all looking at what's actually happening right in front of us this mm -hmm. poor little kid is like terrified and frustrated we're this big scary authority figure like what you know and i'm sorry but any other more compassionate discipline they knew that back then they could have yep. just told us dude stop that <laughs> you're freaking that kid out like yeah. give the kid a hug he's a kid yep. he deserves to feel safe when he's with you you know but yes 
Well, and then this reminds, and this sort of reminds me of 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 why we're there's a lot of conversation now around assent, right? Um, uh, you know, when that was certainly what when it was only before about parental consent, and as long as the parents were were signed that piece of paper, we could really just do whatever we wanted um, in that moment, and so that's why the, I think the conversation has really moved to assent. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. There's two terms down, one to go. <laughs> Reflection, um, and maybe Nessie. Uh, uh, I think we we we, sh- we we should let you start. Yeah, we absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So this is actually a term that I used in that ABAI webinar that I did a couple years ago for the practice board, mm. and and it's actually in the paper that I wrote a couple years ago as something that would greatly benefit our field Mm. if we embrace it as a practice reflection. So I want to start off by um, just talking about what it is. You know, what is this thing called reflection? I was trained Mm. to reflect as a practice, as a teacher. And because I got behavior analytic training later, I was shocked that there was no such practice, at least in the program that I attended, there was no such practice. So as a teacher, after every lesson, you reflect on your, um, the lesson. Um, When I got additional training, I did a postdoc and I also got training to uh, engage in reflection as a practice after I did a home visit. Because the work is so evocative, it's so triggering, and anything can happen. So really, reflection is just, it is really looking back and questioning your practice, questioning and looking at um, your thoughts, what came up. So reflection Many of us engage in this act of reflection, kind of looking back, thinking about what happened. That is great. But in order to get mileage out of it as a practitioner, it needs to be developed into a practice. And what's Mm. the difference? Mm. Reflection as a practice is when you set aside space and time for it routinely. Mm-hmm. So a reflective practitioner who is a behavior analyst is after they after every time they finish a plan, they're going to reflect every time they get done working. Maybe it's um, at the end of the week, they're going to reflect on their practice and their service to learners. It is routine reflection. And the I, I had an opportunity to talk to Alan Nuringer and I told him what I was doing with this reflection. And he shared with me the benefit. The benefit of it is what reflection does. It creates a pause where you're thinking about what you're doing between the stimulus and the response. Hmm. And stimulus in the in response is really where kind of our unconscious awareness lies, some of that implicit bias that we talk about. So if we create that space and time to really think about what it is we're doing, hmm. it can change the outcomes. So we reflect on practice, we create that time 
to reflect on practice. So it, it builds capacity and fluency on reflecting in practice. It has changed my life. Um, I do a lot of training on reflective practice and reflective supervision. Because if there's a way you can embed this in your supervisory work that creates the time and space for the supervisee and the supervisor to engage in this process together. And it changes outcomes. That's the whole purpose for it to change outcomes, more positive outcomes for those that we serve. I invite everyone to do it as simple as it is. And when I train, I, it's this is experiential. We don't just kind of reflect. You can't just talk to somebody about reflection. You have to guide them through it. And when we reflect, we talk and look at, talk about things and look at what comes up in your whole body. What comes mm. up? What gets tense in your body? Where does your mind go? And that gives us data because wherever your mind goes in that reflection, it's going to go there in practice. And that's the power of engaging in reflection as a practice. I think it's something that should be standard in our field. Mm. Um, and as I've been talking more about it and bringing more people into contact with it, I see it growing. But my hope is more, more uh, universities training programs adopt it. And lean on like uh, disciplines like early childhood special ed, social work, medicine, who have been using this for a while, and it has they have had some success with it, a lot of mm. success. Yeah, I really appreciate that, and see, and I've learned a lot about self reflection from you and, and listening to your talks, um, and you know. Uh, the seeds of this have always been in our field. It's just that we kind of didn't get the implications of it, I think. So if you look at like the, the chapter in the Cooper book on self-management and self-monitoring, that basically is that. Like you set a goal, you say what you want to do, and you watch yourself to see if you actually did it. Sorry, my computer's about to die. Okay, fixed it. <laughs> uh, you, you observe your behavior and you see, okay, did I execute the, the behaviors that I said that I would do? But the way that we usually think about self-management in ABA is really sort of simplistic overt behaviors like number of cigarettes smoked or number of alcohol drank or number of minutes at the gym. And those are all really important things. But Nasia, what you're talking about is so much more powerful because it's the whole package in a dynamic and really complex way, including private events. And yes, yes. private events can be part of our science too, all the way back to Skinner 1945. We are allowed to talk about private events. And so noticing... Uh, what thoughts show up, like you said, Nasia, noticing what feelings and emotional responses show up, noticing what bodily sensations show up. Maybe I'm getting goosebumps. Maybe my heart's racing. Maybe I'm sweating. All of those are part of our complex environment that influence our behavior. And all of those things matter. Um, and, and the cool thing about it is like, you know, some people are like, oh, this isn't behavior analysis. This is CBT or mentalism or something. The thing is, is noticing and reflecting is behavior. It's a skill in yes. itself. And all of these things that we're mm. noticing are stimuli in our environment, or there are mm. our own other behaviors that we can uh, uh, respond to and notice. And so it's all stuff we can learn and we can't get better at it unless we, like Nasia said, Practice, 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 and set aside time. And the cool thing about it is like the, the present moment attention work from the ACT literature is all about this. And so advanced present moment skills are about noticing our own behavior, our own thoughts and feelings and private events, paying attention to them, 
when they provide us with useful information, act on that information. When they don't, set them aside and, and get focused on what you care about and what you can do in that moment. So really, it. really powerful stuff. I love it. I love it. You know, and I heard um, another colleague say this, and, and I am aligned with it. We often remove ourselves from the analysis. Mm -hmm. Like we are a part of the environment. We are a part of the analysis. And we, you know, we we don't do ourselves any good. We don't do those we serve any good when we remove ourselves from the analysis. That's right. And we, we don't make it any more behavioral. In fact, we ironically make it more mentalistic. If we're pretending like what we're doing as an organism doesn't matter in the environment, that is bonkers. That's like, that's like pretending that somehow what we're doing is in some special category that isn't real behavior or something. That's actually more mentalistic. But to treat our own behavior as an important part of our environment that influences back on our own behavior, whether it's private or public behavior and, and stimuli, is much actually a much more con, uh, consistent behavior analytic way of doing it. Love mm. it. Hmm. Early, the early point about, you know, making it a routine. I think for me, reflection has always been something I do reactively. You know, when, when when there's been a problem or someone's gotten angry with me um, and I don't understand why and I'll stop and think about what I said and go back and, you know, and usually follow up with an apology or an amend or something. Um, that's the only time I reflect. I don't I don't really think about I mean, I'm sure I'm thinking about things sometimes, but I don't consciously go. It's time to do some reflections. So I think that that's probably the, the key piece there, because I'm. The, the way you're describing it, it, it really is sort of, you know, an, an antecedent intervention in a lot of ways. And I'm, mm -hmm. and I'm doing it as the consequence intervention. Um, and it's not helpful because often, you know, time will then have passed too too far because of the argument or the, or the fight or whatever it's been happening. And, and, and you know, it can be effective, you know, um, uh, you know, it, you know, it can be helpful to sort of in a conversation to sort of let me stop. Let's stop here and pause and, you know, maybe let me think about this for a while and I can come back to it. Uh, but that usually doesn't happen when, when you know, when when the heat's rising and, you know, emotions are flaring and those sorts of things. So, you know, I, I think I think you've you've really changed, I think, my definition of reflection in my mind. So I think that that's awesome. been been really helpful the other thing i see here um you, you, you're you both of you are, are are using the term noticing quite a bit when you're talking yeah. about reflection and so you know obviously it makes me think about mindfulness um which you know interesting i was talking to dr fong on wednesday and we were discussing how uh you know she she had written a paper on mindfulness like you know maybe 10 years ago and none of the journals wanted to hear it, wanted to see it. And, <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, this is not behavior analytic. We don't want to talk about this, but now it seems to be kind of, kind of everywhere. It it sounds like this is, I, I, I presume because I know you're both, you're both really into act that, that acts kind of fits in really nicely with this sort of reflection process. And so uh, how, how are you sort of, you know, applying act principles sort of beyond sort of the mindfulness, I guess, um, when you're, when you're, when you're, when you're reflecting, but when you're, maybe when you're doing all, all these things. Yeah, I'll, I will start because I'm a lot newer to act than mm. Jonathan and I have a coach, somebody that we both have in common, Dr. Tom Subbo, who is mm. absolutely brilliant 
And I've had the opportunity to uh, sit with him for the past a little over a year now mm-hmm. um, and really, really apply my knowledge of ACT and my understanding. So I guess initially when I when I came to understand acceptance and commitment therapy, initially when I had just heard of it, I very much related to it is this something you do with others. What I've come to find out, it's really a technology that I can use to help me understand myself. So when I think about this or or the way I've been trained to engage and organize around this noticing, it's really to notice what my own tendencies are, notice what comes up for me. And Mm. in that noticing is opened up a whole world of possibility for me. It Mm. really, it really has because, you know, I notice when I have a, a tendency to avoid I'm starting to notice what I have in a, t- a tendency to avoid. And then putting that up against what it is I say that's important to me, my values, it opens up mm. a world for me where I can continue to, you know, really look at where my action and my values are aligned. Mm. So the noticing is huge. I found, um, and this is very recently, just being a busy person. Um, I have become like multitasking has become normal for me. I'm, you know, I, I work at a a university. It's completely online. So I will find myself in meetings and then doing something else. (laughs) And so what I, what I started doing was like, okay, Nasia, like stop. Cause it, it really is crazy making. I said, stop. Just whatever you're doing in any given moment, just be there. Just be there for that and notice what happens. Just doing that, just committing to being wherever I'm at in that given moment has changed so much in my life. It's changed my productivity at work. It's changed my relationships with other humans. Hmm. You know, I had a, a, a eye-opening moment um, when I realized, you know, I have a 23-year-old son who's mm. home. And, you know, I started interacting with him from behind the screen and typing something. And I'm like, I am not, this is dehumanizing is when I am, I am not looking up like multitasking has become a way of life. And I stopped it. And immediately that shift, he felt it. Mm. He was almost like he was shocked because I was really authentically communicating with him. Mm. So that noticing to me is just inform my way of being in the world. But as it relates to my practice, it informs the way the people I serve experience me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I cannot agree more. Um, it's really, and so you could call it noticing, you could call it present moment attention, you can call it mindfulness, whatever you want to call it, uh, or situational awareness They, they uh, is a term they use mm-hmm. when they're training like construction workers on that. Yeah. It sounds more macho, you know, um, but it's all the same stuff. And it's about being present here and now. And when we notice our attention wander, non-judgmentally bring it back to, to what's actually happening here and now. And, um, and that's equally true when what's happening here and now is awesome and exciting and stimulating. 
and equally true when it sucks and it's painful and frustrating and equally true when it's just kind of boring or in between, you know, filling out your timesheets, whatever, sitting in a boring department meeting, whatever it is, it's about focusing attention here and now. And the thing is, is it's behavior. And so if it's behavior, it's something we can practice and get better at. And it really is a practice. Nasia, it sounds like you had kind of a big like shift all at once. But for most people, we got to like practice a lot, a little bit every day yeah. and practice across every situation, including right here, right now, that when I'm doing this podcast with you all, I'm really trying to only pay attention to what you're saying and what is showing up for me here and now. And I'm trying not to think about what I'm going to say next or how I sound or if I'm tired or I have to go to the bathroom or anything else. Those thoughts show up, but when they do, I bring my attention back here and now to the two of you mm-hmm. um, and really, and just kind of let go of everything else. If, if When you think about it, present moment attention is almost like giving yourself a vacation from having to even worry or pay attention to anything else. You just like enjoy and celebrate the richness of this moment here mm-hmm. and now, uh, whatever that moment is. And it's so transformative. It's so incredible. It makes great things better. Um, there's actually even research that shows that people can can endure um, aversive stimuli for longer if they actually pay yeah. attention and show up for those stimuli mm-hmm. versus if they try to avoid them. Um, so it's just really, I know it sounds like snake oil, like it's a cure for whatever ails you, but really, honestly, present moment attention does just make life better, um, whatever life throws at you. Agreed. I've seen, yeah, I've seen the snake oil in action. Because, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I do have a lot of anxiety. Uh, it's It's lessened immensely again, like I said, with the medication and whatnot. But um, uh, when when I feel it coming, I notice it now and I'm able to, you know, I don't know much about ACT, but uh, but uh, the, the diffusion piece has always has been the mm. one thing that I've really loved. I loved, I, 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 I regularly use the, you know, I am having the thought that, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and it's been powerful. It, it, it just, it just makes things go away. You know, uh, you don't have to make them go away because they just go away because you just stop thinking about them. Once, once you realize it's just something you're watching and then you go back to focusing on whatever you're doing. Yeah. It's, it's been, it's been amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And then the situ- situational awareness piece resonated with me as well. I, I When I'm not uh, doing behavior analysis stuff, I'm the assistant chief in our local fire department. Oh, okay. And, uh, yeah. And um, a little volunteer fire department. We have an island of 1,500 people. So it's 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 not as glamorous and action-packed as it may sound, but it's still still things do burn and, and uh, people do get hurt. And we do have to sort of be aware of things. And I have found you know, some of some of this work on being present and whatnot has just just made a huge difference, kind of literally keeping folks alive um, um, uh, because I'm able to sort of focus on, on the scene. And, and most of my role tends to involve kind of the, the command role. And so kind of directing folks and, and know what and, and know what's going on kind of at all times and being able to kind of, you know, just stay focused on, on what's happening and what's happening around me has been has been just magical where we're early on. It was quite dangerous. Yeah. 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 You know, the the and, and just the, sort of a final comment about, um, you know, being in this moment, this uh, this I think this podcast episode has been the one I've been most present for myself, and I think that's mm. a lot of it. Is I think it has to do with sort of the behaviors you two are modeling. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it also has to do with 
you know, my, 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 my horrible uh, experience editing the last podcast I did where I clearly wasn't being present and there was lots of noises mm. of me tapping or moving things or shuffling paper. And, and so part of the, part of this is, is, is somewhat negatively reinforced because I'm trying to avoid having an editing nightmare with this episode uh, by, <laughs> by not shuffling around and making lots of noise. But um, uh, this really, I, I have really been able to sort of pick up on moments now and and um a lot more and and this has definitely been one of the one of the one of the one of the best moments in a while and i really appreciate kind of kind of kind of both of you for 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 coming on and doing this i told you i was nervous in the beginning but you you both have made for a really easy conversation um and uh and, and i just really appreciate you both for being willing to kind of come on and do this with me Absolutely. Thank you, Ben. And again, thank you for the support that you have provided, given me the last few years, mm -hmm. you know, um, since I started, like, really getting more active in our behavior analytic community. I really do appreciate it. Well, yeah. on, on, and on that note, sorry, Jonathan, and I'll let you jump in a second here. Uh, um, well, actually, you go ahead and then, and then, and then, I'll, and then I'll, I'll say something. What are you going to say, Jonathan? Sure. I was just going to say thank you for this podcast. I think um, getting information out to our community, um, especially information that is not the same old stuff that you hear all the time and that's mm -hmm. sort of brave and 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 vulnerable and, and addresses challenging topics is a really important gift to the behavior analytic community. Um, so thank you. Thank you for doing it overall. And thank you for letting Nasia and I be part of it. Well, yeah, I'm, really I'm, appreciate it. Humbled and, and appreciative of the comments. And just maybe on an ending note, um, um, and maybe just to sort of support you one more time, Nasia. Uh, I understand you have a new podcast. Uh, I do. Wonder if you could I just do. tell us a little bit about that and sort of what 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 your goals and mission are of it. Absolutely. So thank you. Yes, it's through ABA Technologies. It's mm. called Evolving ABA. Mm. Wow. Um, I just recorded the third episode. Um, the first episode was Dr. Richard Spates. If folks have not listened, please take a listen. He is mm -hmm. absolutely amazing mm -hmm. um, from Western Michigan University, now retired, but has done some phenomenal work. Mm -hmm. The second guests were Anika Costa and Polly Gavoni, ah. who talked about school-based behavior services. And third episode coming soon is with Dr. Natalie Arueja, and she will be talking about trauma. Mm. So, so absolutely. Um, my vision for that podcast was again, like you to make spaces, um, make space to amplify the work of individuals who were little known in our field and who don't mm. get a lot of opportunities necessarily to share their work, but who are doing outstanding, making outstanding contributions to the field. Um, mm. And just to put a little twist on it, to talk about things that we don't hear about a lot, mm. um, things that are different. So some of the upcoming episodes will be addressing the role of faith in our mm. field. We do have behavior analysts. I am one of them who have a faith walk, you know, and mm. just having some conversation around what that looks like and what that experience is like. Mm. Um, talking about relationships from a behavior analytic point of view. Mm. I think we have a lot of exciting episodes coming up. So please tune in Evolving yeah. ABA through ABA Technologies.
Very right cool. Look, look forward to that. Look forward to that. Well, thank you both again. Uh, I, I love doing this today and, and hope one day uh, we, we can see you again. Absolutely. Thank Very you. Very good. Thank you. The third secret word is evolving. <laughs>